Welcome to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. My guest for the hour today is debut author Asia Banus. Her new book is Shaped by Snow, Defending the Future of Winter. It's out from Torrey House Press. In the book, she explores the history of skiing, science of snow, and uh, climate change from ecological and economic perspectives in regard to her own emotional and psychological health. She critically examines her family's prominent role in the development of the ski industry. Uh, and explores threats to winters and watershed in the face of a warming planet and the far-reaching impacts of a diminishing snowpack on the American West. At the same time, she realizes how deeply her personal relationships are tied to the snow-covered mountains of the Wasatch uh, Range. The book is Shaped by Snow. We welcome in uh, Asia Banus. Uh, welcome to the program. Thank you so much for having me. Uh, so you're a climate activist, third-generation skier. You have an MA in Environmental Humanities from University of, uh, of Utah. Uh, so this is an interesting book. It's getting some uh, good critical uh, press. Um, it's it's uh, skiing, it's snow, it's uh, climate change, it's you and your family. Uh, what inspired you to, to write about all these things, put that in the book? Um, I was kind of inspired by the lack of... Um, conversation surrounding climate change within the local ski community in the Wasatch, I started noticing that on years of, like, low snow years, when we wouldn't have um, as much snow as we usually do, um, people would start talking about climate change in regards to the Wasatch Front and the American West snowpack. Um, But on years of big, like, big snow years, when we get powder day after powder day, those conversations about climate change would kind of stop. And um, as he said, I'm a third-generation skier, and my family has had um, fairly large influence on developing the ski industry here in in the Wasatch, specifically my grandfather. And um, I was kind of trying to figure out what my role in in my family's legacy, which is tied so closely to snow, would be. And I realized that um, what if my grandchildren can't experience snow here like I was able to? And it it just kind of hit me that I wanted to um, write a book about um, these issues and and my family's role in it and um, tie it into, you know, some natural history, some atmospheric science and, and stuff like that. Uh, so tell me a bit about your, your grandfathers. I understand on both sides uh, had an influence in the ski industry. Maybe, maybe start with your, your grandfather, Junior. Yeah, so my grandfather, Junior Benus, um, he taught himself how to ski down in Provo on his farm, on his family's farm when he was eight years old. He took two barrel staves and strapped them onto his skis and... or strapped him onto his feet to create really primitive um, ski, and he started just, you know, kind of like pushing himself around his farm. Um, And then he soon, you know, when he was a teenager, he became involved in um, what was then known as Timp Haven, which is now known as Sundance Ski Resort, but he helped build some of the first um, rope toes up there and um, ski lifts up there, and then he soon became... Um, you know, a ski school instructor by kind of meeting the Angam brothers, Sver and Alf, and um, he became involved with Alta and then eventually helped develop um, the runs in the ski school up at Snowbird. 
Um, and my grandfather on my mother's side, his name was Grant Cully, and he also, he would bring his family out from California to Utah to go skiing every year because he loved the snow in the Wasatch Front so much more than the snow in the Sierra Nevada. And so when he, he was a big, you know, he loved investing in properties. And when Snowbird was starting to be talked about um, to develop it, he was the first monetary investor in Snowbird. And so that's how um, both of my grandparents met. And that's how my parents met and fell in love. And your father was a, a ski racer, I think? Mm-hmm. And, yeah, and... He, he raced for the U.S. ski team uh, and then became a professional or became a ski coach and just retired um, as director of the Snowbird ski team last spring. Uh, by the way, you're, I was reading your grandfather, uh, you know, lived in the Bay Area, um, wanted to ski Utah. Right, so the perfectly yeah. good resorts in Tahoe. I wonder what the kids thought. We have to travel all the way across the oh, Nevada yeah. and Utah to get to yeah. the the Utah snow. My mom did not understand it at all. She was <laughs> she was just like, uh, "Wait, we could be driving four hours to get to these ski resorts, or we have to drive." They usually would have to drive three days, two or three days. <laughs> and she just did not really understand it as a child. <laughs> so skiing, skiing is in in your blood. Um, I wonder if I mm-hmm. could have you read a passage. Uh, pe- this is page six from Shaped by Snow. Um, just that first paragraph. Yeah, absolutely. Last night I dreamed I was skiing. The context here: you're um, you've driven out to to meet your your boyfriend now, your partner, right? He's he, he's running the river, I think, right? Mm-hmm. So you're out in the desert, but you're dreaming about skiing. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and it's it happened on the summer solstice. So it was literally the longest day of the year, as far away from the ski season as you could be. And I drove down to meet him, and our whole relationship up to that point had just been skiing. That was how you know we met and started getting to know each other. And so I had this dream as I drove down to the desert to meet him. Last night, I dreamed I was skiing. I was moving effortlessly down the fall line of a mountain, consumed by the cold smoke of powder. I was inhaling it. It was passing through the membrane of my skin and entering into my bloodstream. Water droplets froze and latched onto blood cells, creating icy creeks that turned into raging rivers of my legs and the steady drip of capillary trickles in my fingertips. Frost crystallized on my eyelashes. My fingernails lengthened into icicles. My eyes froze over like the surface of a pond. My tendons became brittle like frozen bark. My lungs expanded with crystals. The cold connected muscle and sinew to chilled bones. It filled my womb and left frosted fingerprints in my hair. (laughs) Beautiful. Um, So, I mean, the title of the book, Shaped by Snow, you you do talk about how snow skiing this life has has shaped you and if you talk a bit about that yeah so i mean as i said snow specifically wasatch snow was the reason that my family came to be it was the reason that my grandparents grandparents all met each other it was the reason that my parents met each other and fell in love and it has defined so much of my life so far and 
So I, I think of my life as being shaped by snow because I'm kind of a product of the Wasatch snow. Um, and the title actually also refers to the way that um, snow has shaped the canyons of the Wasatch and the landscape of the American West. Uh, both Little and Big Cottonwood Canyon were made because of glaciers that formed and uh, water erosion that has carved out the canyons of the Wasatch Front, and the American West as a whole has been shaped by the presence of snow in this landscape. And so it also refers to the, to the actual physical landscape that's where the book takes place. And then also uh, the community of, like the ski community, has also been shaped by the presence of snow. We have one of the richest you know, most thriving ski communities in in the American West. And that is specifically because of the quality of the snow here and the, and the shape of the mountains. Uh, I was interested to learn that, um, and you talk about the different uh, geography of Little Cottonwood versus Big Cottonwood, right? Mm-hmm. Both shaped by glaciers, but Little Cottonwood is, is pretty unique. It's, uh, you can stand at the base and see all the way up. Yeah, it's it's really incredible, really stunning from the base. Um, but that became a problem when the Olympics came. Um, your, your family was disappointed, I understand, that yeah. uh, because of security reasons, they didn't want to have events in, in Little Cottonwood. Yeah, uh, I guess that is a rule of the Olympics. Wherever, you know, events are being held, you have to have two exits out of a canyon, and Snowbird and Alta up Little Cottonwood Canyon, uh, there's only one exit. And so for security reasons, it, it makes sense. But uh, with with climate change affecting so much of the world's ski resorts, it, they might have to be held up there because there, there might just not be many resorts left that are able to host the Olympics in the future. I wanted to talk a little bit about that. That uh, comes a little later in the book. You you do talk about how some recent Olympics, uh, they had to go to extreme measures because of uh, uh, climate mm-hmm. warming. Uh, tell me about that. Yeah, so uh, I think in Sochi, they actually started storing snow years in advance. Like Basically, once they realized that uh, they would be hosting the Olympics, they started just taking you know, collecting snowfall and storing it because uh, they knew that they wouldn't be able to uh, produce or that they wouldn't be able to rely on the natural snowfall to um, deliver as much snow as would be necessary. And even, which I, is, yeah, which is amazing. And one Olympics you were talking about, they had to fold in hay or straw or something to the snow, right? Yeah, yeah, that was in Vancouver, I believe. Um, And they had to resort to pretty, you know, make artificial snow or, you know, snow that was made with machines and then mix it in with hay um, to try and, you know, give give the impression that they had more snow than they actually did. So I would, uh, this would be a good time to talk about this, I think. Um, so your your life, your history is bound up in the, in the ski industry, but it's somewhat uh, problematic if you think about climate change. Um, 
Mm-hmm. Uh, tell me about the some of the ways that the ski industry um, is perhaps perhaps not contributing in the in the best way to climate change. Yeah, unfortunately, anything that you do skiing wise um, contributes to climate change in some way. Whether that be, I mean, it's such it's such a, a destination recreation. You know, like a destination sport, people travel all around the world to Japan, to Europe, to South America, to Alaska and Canada, all around the United States. You know, it's pretty problematic because there there are just so many so so many fossil fuels released in that traveling process, and also in you know building resorts, in operating lifts, and and um, just like the day-to-day operations of, of ski resorts release fossil fuels into the atmosphere and contribute to climate change. And um, that's one of the more frustrating parts of the ski industry is that it's solely reliant upon the existence of snow in these certain landscapes. And plenty of resorts in Europe are struggling because their glaciers are receding plenty of more the like mom and pop resorts in the united states have already had to close because they don't have enough money to artificially you know to produce snow with machines and so um it's kind of this dark side of the ski industry almost where they we are contributing to our own snow's demise and so that's a really frustrating part about being part of the ski community is that um, ultimately our practices and our reliance our reliance on fossil fuels is going to cause the industry to probably disappear altogether by 2100 or so yeah you another interview you said something poignant um is an interview with your publisher. You said, in my short 25 years of life, uh, you realized you had seen as much change in the snowpack as your grandfather, Junior, had in his 90 years of life. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's happening pretty rapidly. Um, and it's sort of hard because um, in the Wasatch Front, we have some of the highest elevation ski resorts that get the most consistent um snowfall each year. And so the Wasatch Mountain Range is actually going to be probably some of the safest from climate change. So it's it's sometimes hard to predict what exactly is going to happen with the snowpack. You know, uh, in all the climate predictions, they have, uh, you know, like a high emissions uh, prediction of like, if we do not curb our fossil fuels at all and we just keep producing as we are or you know increase our production of fossil fuels this is going to be the high emissions predictions and this is going to be the mid-range and this is going to be the low and uh yeah i've seen some predictions say that by like mid-century the average ski season could be cut in half and already in in my lifetime like i remember we used to always ski on Thanksgiving. We always had snow. I mean, sometimes powder days. I remember skiing powder days on Thanksgiving. And in the past few years, it's like pretty rare for the resorts to be able to open in time for Thanksgiving. 
You make an interesting comparison. Um, you compare mining to to snow. In fact, um, you know, there's a direct uh, link. Uh, you know, many of these ski towns were mining towns in the past, including Alta, mm-hmm. for example. Um, and it, I wonder if you could talk about that. You talk about a boom and bust cycle in mining, um, and, and compare that to skiing. Yeah. So, as I'm sure many people are familiar with the term boom and bust, um, so industries like mining that are reliant upon a limited resource go can go through boom and bust cycles, meaning that people, you know, once they realize that a resource is there and that they can make money off of it, they rush to an area, such as some of the canyons up the Wasatch. You know, they started discovering precious metals up there. And so the town of Alta was created, and I think at one point had quite a few thousand people um, living up there. But as with any boom and bust cycle, once that resource runs dry, then that's the bust. You know, the boom is when every the town is flourishing. There's a lot of money coming into it. Um, and then the bust is when the resource runs out and suddenly the town becomes a ghost town. And so that happened a lot with the mining towns. And you see a lot of mine tailings up at Alta and Snowbird, and a lot of the lifts and the runs are named after old mines that were there. And so I compare that. No one really thinks of the ski industry as being being a boom and bust industry yet because snow is still so consistent. But, like, even on years that have more powder, like, you still see that kind of, like, boom and bust cycle. You know, last year in the Wasatch we had an amazing ski season and the um, the economy, you know, kind of like of the local ski industry kind of fluctuates for these boom and bust cycles. And I think that further into the future with more erratic ski seasons, we are going to continue seeing that boom and bust cycle even more. And I, I kind of predict that in the future, we might even see kind of like ghost ski towns in the same way that, we saw ghost mining towns. And it's interesting you, you write that, um, you know, who would have predicted that snow might become a non-renewable resource? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, and I, I think that's kind of where we might be headed, unfortunately, uh, that we take snow for granted so much. But as climate change affects many mountain ecosystems, the precipitation that will be occurring in the mountains will likely start being more rain than snow. Hmm. Um, so I want to take a break, come back, talk a bit about climate change and how that might affect uh, snow and and water, of course. Um, you have an experience, maybe you could talk about this um, in the book. By the way, this is page 39. Uh, I think this is your niece, I want to say. Um, you're, you're, I think you're lounging in the summertime and you're writing your book. Mm-hmm. And she comes up and starts just pointing to passages. In fact, underlying passages. I guess she wants mm-hmm. to just participate with you. Um, and um, and so she underlines a, a phrase and says, "What does it say?" <laughs> and you say, "Snow." And then another one. What does that say? Mass extinction. <laughs> and then a third one. She underlines at random, I suppose. What does that say? Fossil fuel industries are propelling climate change. And then you have the thought: How do I explain climate change to a child? Mm-hmm. 
Yeah, that was a really poignant moment for me. I mean, and it it happened exactly as I write about it. And I just was hit so hard with this realization that, um, you know, I always kind of think of climate change as a fight for my generation. I'm, I'm in my late 20s. And it hit me that, like, it's not, it's not even my generation so much as it is the younger generations are going to be even more affected by climate change. And, and it's so hard to even know how to explain that to a child and to have to say that their life might be really greatly affected by this thing that they had literally no control over and that it was really you know, a few generations above them that set this into motion. And it's kind of my generation that has to, you know, we're the ones kind of like having to be activists and having to fight for this younger generation because it's really in these next, like, in this next decade that will determine how extreme the climate crisis will be. So how do you feel about that as, you know, as a certified member of the younger generation. <laughs> um, uh, this role, I don't know, do you feel this role is thrust upon you? Do you feel disappointment in older generations? What, how do you feel about that? Yeah, I mean, I feel frustration. Um, and I can't say that I necessarily, like, harbor anger towards older generations because um, that's unfortunately just a quality of, human beings, we lack foresight in a lot of the, um, a lot of the things that we do, like, you know, the mining industry. And um, what I'm the most frustrated in right now is what I like to call climate liars. So rather than just climate deniers that are denying climate change, it's mostly the people who understand that climate change is happening and that are actively lying about it and you know, claiming that it's not, you know, like the fossil fuel industries, mainly Exxon, who knew that it was going to be an issue back in the 70s and chose not to, you know, make it a top priority in, in dealing with. And so that's that's where I harbor most of the anger. And it's like, it's, it's easy for them, you know, to, it's just hard. I don't really understand it because they have, they all had children and grandchildren, most likely, who will now have children and grandchildren who will be affected by climate change. So. What what form should the activism, you know, you describe yourself as a climate activist. Uh, what form should that activism take? What What's more, most effective, do you think? So I, um, I was in a class with a man named Tim DeChristopher, who many, you know, local climate activists know his name. He put bids on land down in southern Utah during, like, an oil and gas BLM lease, and he, he was arrested. And he he told me something that really stuck with me, because it's... I always thought that our... Like, the majority of our effort should go into convincing people that climate change is happening, you know, the people that don't believe it's happening. And he he actually said that you know, you're going to put all of this effort into trying to convince someone that climate change is happening when 
it kind of almost doesn't matter if they believe in it or not, because the fact of the matter is it's happening. He thinks that the majority of our efforts should be convincing people who have recognized that climate change is happening. They know it's happening, but they're not, um, you know, they're not doing anything about it. They're not voting correctly or they're not pursuing their politicians. And he said that, the, you know, that's where our efforts are best placed convincing those people who already know that climate change is happening, that we need to become more, I guess, extreme in our activism, um, be putting pressure on our politicians mostly, because really the way that our world, you know, our um, country is run, that's going to put the most pressure on the oil and gas industry. So... Well, we, uh, we're overdue for a break. Let's take that now and come back much more to talk about. The book is Shaped by Snow, Defending the Future of Winter. The author is Asia Banus. Uh, it's out from uh, Tory House Press. And Asia Banus will be at uh, King's English Bookshop for an event, um, reading and conversation, um, on November 16th. That's Saturday. So Saturday, King's English Bookshop in Salt Lake City, 2 p.m. That event is free and open uh, to the public. We'll have more following this break. Thanks for listening to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams, and uh, my uh, guest for the hour today is uh, debut author Asia Banus. Um, the book is Shaped by Snow, Defending the Future of Winter. Asia Banus's family uh, involved in the ski industry, foundation of ski industry in, in Utah, and uh, she's an avid skier, loves uh, snow, but uh, this is a conversation bound up in climate change as well, what might happen to, to the snow. And uh, what is her responsibility as she looks to the future? By the way, Asia Banus, um, uh, your first book, was this harder or easier than you, than you thought? It. <laughs> um, it, was, it was hard. It, was, it originally actually started off as a... Um, a master's thesis while I was at the University of Utah. I was in, I was completing an environmental humanities master of arts, and this was kind of my thesis topic. I wanted to tie in climate change with snow and, and my family's history in the ski industry, in the local ski industry here in the Wasatch. And so I had kind of, you know, done a thesis, and and after I graduated, my committee chair Jeff McCarthy, who's the head of our program, um, he was like, you know, you could turn this into a book. It needs some work, but you you should, you know, can spend the next year rewriting it and submit it to a publishing company. And so that's exactly what I did. And I submitted it to Tory House Press and they picked it up, I'm glad to say. And um, then I continued to work with them, revising and editing. And yeah, I mean, it was a probably not as daunting of a task just because there were so many steps involved. You know, it started off as a smaller thesis and then kind of like transitioned into more of a book. Um, I'm actually just starting my next book project is going to be a biography of my grandfather, Junior Benus, and I'm finding this to be way more daunting, actually, <laughs> of like trying to start to write a book about someone's life from scratch is uh, it's it's hitting me how large of a task it is. <laughs> mm. Well, we'll look forward to that. 
Um, hey. So I want to return to the ski industry. Of course, your your family has a long history in the ski industry, and you you write about how this you know this is a complicated thing. You love ski uh, uh, skiing. Um, many people love skiing, but that there are some problematic aspects when you think about uh, climate change. Uh, and just to kind of finish that part of the discussion, um, is skiing overall a, a positive thing or a negative thing, do you think? I think overall it can be a positive thing. I think right now um, it does have a pretty negative role in in climate change, and specifically because so many people who participate in the ski industry aren't discussing climate change and aren't doing anything to combat it. That being said, I think that the ski industry could be such a powerful player in battling climate change. I think that, you know, uh, so many people involved in the ski industry are pretty influential politically and um, could, you know, for the most part, the ski industry is made of, you know, fairly wealthy people who could donate their time and energy and money towards, um, you know, dealing with climate change and influencing their politicians. And we see what a stronghold some companies and industries like oil and gas and the NRA can have with our politics and influencing our politicians. And I think that the ski industry, if we kind of got it together could play a huge role in um, switching to renewable energies and trying to move our economy off of fossil fuels. I wonder if you could talk a little bit about what snow means, um, you know, right now in terms of water uh, in the West, and and then what might change as, uh, as uh, you know, if climate change moves forward. Yeah, so... The American West is a desert. It's a high elevation desert, and we get our water from snowpack, mostly. And lots of people think that, you know, if, if it, as the precipitation changes from snow to rain as climate change progresses here in the American West, it's easy to think that, oh, it just means that we get our moisture in the form of water rather than snow, and that's fine. But in reality, the snowpack is a really important um, thing in in terms of uh, watersheds because snowpacks, thick, healthy snowpacks that develop during the winter will stay through the summer months in, you know, places of higher elevation. And that is really important. It means that the water is getting released into the ecosystem downstream, um, you know, throughout the summer months, the months of drought. And when we have uh, precipitation in the form of rain rather than snow, the water moves through the watershed uh, quicker than we can actually kind of like harness it and use it for our crops and and stuff. And so, um, you know, that's when it causes the most flooding and the most harm to our cities and our houses. And yeah, uh, snow is sometimes with the snow climate change issue, people, you know, think that it's 
the only reason that we should care about snow is because, you know, of this kind of like ski industry. And that's not the case. Snow is so important in the West for watershed purposes and all over the planet, really. Um, you know, glaciers in Europe and glaciers in India and or Nepal and the Himalayas, like so many cultures or communities are reliant upon snow as a as a source of water. Do you think, uh, I guess it's, it's my perception that a lot of times we don't think about that. We, we just, we're living our lives and we're hoping for the best and we're not, <laughs> we're not thinking about the future yeah. that way. Yeah. Yeah. It's easy to like Los Angeles, Las Vegas, San Diego, all of these pretty, very prominent uh, cities were built in the desert with no real, you know, water resource. And all of those cities are reliant upon reservoirs that are downstream of the snowpacks in the American West. And so it's, I mean, it's a very real issue that we as a country and a culture are going to have to um, kind of deal with in, in the future decades. I'd like to pull back from climate change and, and just talk about snow. Um, and you say you love snow. I guess one reason, you, you love to ski, right? But I so, do, yes. <laughs> sounds like you love snow. You love snow for snow. What are you talking I about? I love that? it. I love it. I love how, I love the shape of it. I mean, I think it's just the most amazing thing. I love, you know, how it feels. I love how it falls and, and how it transforms the landscape and transforms, you know, how we experience the landscape and how we live our lives. And I love, you know, kind of the like molecular science behind it, you know, how each snowflake has six points and how it they develop. And I'm, I'm just obsessed with it for lack of better word. <laughs> and you're not the only one. Uh, in fact, you go, you go back in history. You quote uh, the famous mathematician Johannes Kepler. He wrote a book mm-hmm. about snow. Yeah. Yeah, he actually became obsessed with snow as well. He noticed that every snowflake that he looked at had six points. And he was kind of like, well, why? Why, you know, why do all snowflakes have six points? And he couldn't ever figure it out because he was, you know, he lived too early before molecular science came to being. Uh, but he he actually, yeah, wrote a book that was nicknamed Kepler's Unsolved Problem because he became so obsessed with trying to figure out why snowflakes all have six points. Now, I'm sure you've encountered people don't share your love for snow. See it as a nuisance. Yeah. <laughs> what, do you, what, yep. do you, what do you say to them? Um, I say that I don't know. I just think that snow is a great reminder that we are still living. Like, even though we can build cities and basically push, you know, like nature out of our, and often out of our, like, day-to-day lives, snow is kind of like a harsh reminder at times. Like, we are still living on this planet, and this planet can be pretty, like, volatile in, in some ways um, with the weather patterns and stuff. So I think that snowstorms um, is just a healthy reminder to everyone, even to the people who, 
you know, don't enjoy it, that um, we are living on a planet that has weather patterns and has a climate and everything. So, um, I wonder if you, do you have a favorite place? If so, you could you tell us about it? Yeah. Um, my favorite place is up at Snowbird. It's up Little Cottonwood Canyon, and it's actually a peak that straddles Snowbird and Alpa. Uh, they call it Baldy, and it requires a hike um, during the winter months to get up to. And, um, and sometimes during the winter on, you know, epic snowstorms, it can have some of the best skiing and the best terrain um, up Little Cottonwood Canyon, and I think personally in the Wasatch Front. Um, but skiing aside, it is just, it has the most gorgeous view in the world. I love being up there as, you know, as kind of the the late afternoon sun is starting to set over the Wasatch and all of the, all of the shadows just elongate across the snow. And I love, I love how shadows look on snow. They kind of like turn blue and the way that the, the shadows elongate blue on the snow and the way that the, um, the way that the sun kind of turns the snow almost like an amber, a golden color. And this place, Baldy, I think is just the best place to witness how the sun and the snow um, change the landscape, I guess. Uh, it's just gorgeous. It, you look all the way down Little Cottonwood Canyon and all the way down into the Salt Lake Valley, and you can see the ochres, and it's it's amazing. That does sound beautiful. Um, if you just joined us, we're talking with uh, Asia Bonus. Her new book is Shaped by Snow, Defending the Future of Winter. She talks about uh, her love for snow, her love for skiing, her family's involved in skiing, talks about climate change. Well, let's take another break. When we come back, Asia Bonusa, I want to talk about one of the uh, very important questions that you, that you ponder in this book, and that is with a view of uh, climate change and uh, where the world might be going, um, you, you question, should I have children? That's a, that's a very important question. I want to talk about that. Um, following this break. Thanks for listening to Access U Time. Tom Williams. So we're talking with Asia Bonus. She's a debut author. Her first book is out, Shaped by Snow, Defending the Future of Winter. Uh, it's getting uh, very positive reviews. It's uh, being published by Tory House Press. And uh, you can attend an event headlined by Asia Banus. Uh, she'll be at the King's English Bookshop on Saturday in Salt Lake City. 2 p.m. is that event that's free and open uh, to, the, to the public. So I want to get into this very important question you ponder, Asia Banus, in the book. Um, it, it kind of, you, you, um, you frame it uh, beginning with a, sort of a, a humorous slash uncomfortable experience that I think many of us have experienced. Um, your, your boyfriend, then boyfriend, uh, says, hey, let's go visit my grandparents, right? And, um, <laughs> and, and his grandfather cracks a kind of a joke. He, he notices that uh, in, in his generations, every 30 years, uh, you have the next generation. And then he says, uh, hey, you guys maybe ought to have a think about having kids. Now, he's joking, 
<laughs> but it's a little uncomfortable too, right? Yeah. Uh, yeah, and the reason behind that is that I have been, for the last few years, I've been, you know, I'm in kind of like prime childbearing years, and I start dating this guy, and I don't know if I want to have children with climate change as such a huge, enormous issue, and it's certainly only going to get worse in the future, even if we can curb emissions, or unless we can curb emissions pretty drastically, and you know, as, especially as a female, they talk about carbon legacies, which is essentially, you know, the most carbon emissions that I will release during my lifetime is having children and all the carbon emissions that will be released by them and by their grandchildren. And so it's kind of a, it's a topic that's hard because I, I do want to have children in my life, but I, I don't know if I can do that. I don't want to bring them into climate crisis. And I also don't want to be releasing more carbon into the atmosphere than I already do. And so it hadn't really hit me that um, if I fall in love, which I have, and, you know, that my future husband could want to have children and his family might expect us to have grandchildren, you know, children and grandchildren. And that was kind of a, a little bit of a slap in the face for me where I always thought that this was going to be like my own decision not to have kids. And, and then I realized, wow, if I start a life with someone I really love and he wants to start a family, how am I going to even communicate, you know, the whole like climate change, no children thing to, to him and his, his grandfather? and his father. And And you say you've had conversations with many other young women who experience these same thoughts, the same anxiety. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I have these conversations with young women all the time about, and I personally know many who have already made that decision not to have children because of climate change. And it's kind of a topic that, um, like my, my parents' generation doesn't really understand. Like whenever I try to have these conversations with my my parents or other people, you know, in their 50s or 60s, they're, they can never quite understand why I'm making this decision to not have children. Um, and that, I think, almost more than anything else, makes me feel like climate change is the most, you know, it's like the hardest issue for my generation because we are not just, you know, it's it's an existential threat, um, and we are for foregoing starting families because of it. You say that you write. Sometimes it feels like it's become the women's responsibility to save our climate. Mm-hmm. And. And going on to say that it, it does not escape my notice, you say that mothers are often the ones on the front lines of environmental and climate activism. Yeah, and uh, I find that, that true with a lot of things. Like in environmental justice cases where 
say like an oil refinery is being built next to a community with children, it's often the mothers who are the ones who are like, wait, these are our children that, you know, this is our children's health that we're talking about. And of course, you know, everyone plays plays a part in climate change. But I, I do think that we are starting to see a shift in um, specifically uh, indigenous women really taking um, the leadership roles in the climate change movement. So these, I want to follow up conversations with, I don't know, that you've had with, you know, with your parents or other women that you've, young women, talking to their parents or grandparents, perhaps. Um, and, you know, talking about, well, maybe I'm not going to have kids because of this. Um, mm-hmm. Maybe talk to me a little bit more about how that conversation proceeds, because that's, as you say, it's exist, it, existential on one side, existential on the other side. Existential if we don't have kids, right? You know, not going to continue, right? Yeah. So I actually had this really powerful conversation with my mother. Um, You know, whenever we'd have conversations about climate change and children, I would just be like, I can't bring kids into this world because I don't really have, have hope for, you know, that this planet will be livable here in like, maybe 150, 200 years or something like that. Like, I don't know if I want to be the one responsible that, you know, I, I've i made the decision to bring more humans onto this planet and their lives might just be kind of, like, doomed to climate crisis. And my, I, had, I was having this conversation with my mother, and I was like, how can I have children if I don't have hope? And she countered with, well, maybe choosing to have children is choosing to have hope. And that was really powerful for me to hear because it's almost easier to decide not to have children and to then, like, you're, I will care less about what happens to this planet if I don't have children, if that makes sense. Mm -hmm. And if I choose to have children and to start a family, that's almost going to make me fight more against climate change. Um, You know, like choosing to have children and bring them into this world is in itself an act of hope and an act that says, I think there is, you know, all is not lost yet. Um, So while I kind of, you know, I have this storyline through the book of me kind of trying to grapple with, like, should I have kids? Should I not have children? And then there's this powerful moment where my mother, you know, is like, well, what if to choose to have children is is in it itself an act of hope. Um, so hopefully that <laughs> hopefully that brings, you know, more hope to, to my readers and not just despair. Yeah, it's um, and that is a choice, isn't it? In fact, you end the book that way, musing about mm-hmm. uh, you know, have a choice. I can choose hope. I can choose despair. Um, and maybe that'd be a good place to end the conversation. We just have a couple of minutes. What if you could talk about that? You quote um, Rebecca Solnit. Yeah. Um. Let me. Do you have that quote uh, right uh, in front y- of you? Yes. Yeah, I can read that. Um, 
I don't uh, want to mess she, it up. She says, to hope is to gamble. It's to bet on your futures, on your desires, on possibility, on the possibility that an open heart and uncertainty is better than gloom and safety. To hope is dangerous, yet it is the opposite of fear, for to live is to risk. Yeah. Yes. I mean, living in itself is risk, and falling in love is a risk, and our lives are filled with risk, and we kind of have this decision that we can either live in fear and, in my case, choose despair, or we can make that effort to choose hope. And sometimes with climate change, it can just feel so overwhelming and so hard to find any hope in the situation. And for me, um, the way that I can find the most hope is by focusing on on something. You know, I, I like to compare it to a ballerina spinning around. You know, if you're just spinning in circles, it's hard to focus on something um, and you'll just get dizzy, <laughs> for lack of, you know, better word. Um, and that's how climate change can feel. You're looking at all of these issues all around the world, and it's just so overwhelming. And I find that if you can focus on, find the thing that you love above everything else, you know, find that thing and keep returning to it. Whenever life just feels so overwhelming or the issues at hand feel just like too big to deal with, keep returning to that one thing. And that's like a ballerina, you know, keeping something in her vision. And as she spins, just always returning and looking at that one point and just returning to it and returning to it and returning to it. And for me, that's snow in the Wasatch Front. That is the issue that I am the most passionate about. That is the thing that I want to save for my children and my grandchildren. And the thing about climate change is that there are so many things happening all over the planet and we can't just be, you know, putting, we need to be focused, focusing our efforts onto the thing that we know that we can make a difference in. And if everyone around the world is putting their efforts into whatever they're passionate about, it's going to make a difference on a global scale. And um, so for me, find that thing that gives you hope. That's, that's for wonderful. For me, that's snow. And that's snow. Uh, well, we're, yeah. we're out of time. That's a great place to end the conversation. The book is Shaped by Snow, Defending the Future of Winter. The author is Asia Banus. Uh, she'll be at the uh, King's English Bookshop, 2 p.m. on Saturday. That event is free and open to the public. Asia Banus, it's been, been such a pleasure. Thank you so much. Thank you. Really appreciate it. And thanks for listening to Access Utah.